This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So, I don't know precisely when it happened, but at some point in my adult life, I became the kind of person who very easily cries while watching a movie. I know I wasn't this kind of person in my 20s, but at this point, it's, it's gotten to the place where any time our family is watching sort of a sentimental or powerful moment in a movie, one of my kids will look over to see if dad has started crying. And the movie that gets me multiple times every time I watch it is the 2017 film Wonder, which is based on the book with the same title. It was so bad the last time we watched this movie that some of my kids actually found it more entertaining to stop watching the movie and watch me watch the movie. So, Wonder follows the story of a 10-year-old boy named Augie. And Augie was born with a rare facial deformity. And so he's been homeschooled his entire life. But now he's going into fifth grade, and his parents decide it's time for Augie to go to school. So the film follows Augie through that year of school as he acclimates to his social environment, as he gets bullied for the way he looks, and as he slowly starts to make friends. And the story is told from the angle of various characters. And the one that always gets me is Augie's high school older sister, Via. Now, Via loves Augie. She watches out for him. But at the same time, she often, frankly, feels neglected and ignored by her parents because of how much energy it takes to watch out for Augie. And so Via makes this decision that she's going to fade into the background. And she's not going to share the details. In fact, she's going to hide the details of her life from her parents. And there's this poignant moment where Via says, I wish just once my mom would cast her gaze upon me. And then there's this moment where Via is the understudy for the school's production of the play Our Town. And she's also working on the, uh, the crew. So she's behind stage, and it's her friend who's in the lead role. And because her friend's in the lead role, Via's parents are in the audience. And then Via sees an opportunity. I'm sorry, her friend sees an opportunity in this moment and thinks, I'm going to pretend like I'm sick. And it thrusts Via out onto the stage, and all of a sudden, her family is sitting there watching Via and her amazing performance. So after the play is over, her family comes backstage, they're congratulating her, telling her what a wonderful job she's done. And then there's this moment where Via looks up, and her mom is staring right at her. And she just points at her. And I am a wreck every single time. I had to practice telling you that story so I wouldn't cry right here. And I think... The reason that scene is always so powerful for me is that in that moment, it feels like Via is receiving the fulfillment of this fundamental human desire to be seen and to be known and to be loved. But that desire is a rather vulnerable desire, isn't it? 
Because over the course of your life, you'll experience the pain of when someone you expected or hoped would love you instead ignores you or even rejects you. And you'll deal with the sin in your life that makes you think, man, if people really knew everything about me, there's no way that they could love me. And so you go into self-protection mode. Like Via, we can have the tendency in certain ways to fade into the background, to, to just hide our desire to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. We can go into survival mode, even going so far as to avoid close relationships in our lives or to even reorder the details of our lives in order to self-protect. But of course, that doesn't get rid of the desire, that fundamentals of desire to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. If we live like that, we will live an unfulfilled life. We'll live a restless life. Father Matt and I agree that the collect he just prayed a moment ago that we have for this third Sunday of Lent, it's one of the best ones of the whole year. It comes from a prayer of St. Augustine. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because thanks be to God, the good news of the gospel is that the Lord fully sees you. He's counted every hair upon your head. And the Lord fully knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb, and he knows every single detail of your life. And with all that knowledge, guess what? The Lord fully loves you. Okay, so talk about a scene that can bring tears to my eyes. I invite you to turn to our gospel passage this morning from John chapter 4. Um, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 888. So I encourage you to open to that passage now. This is the beautiful story of the encounter at the, wall, the well between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. And kudos to Deacon Will for the longest gospel reading of the year. <laughs> so this is the story of a woman who had experienced ridicule and rejection. And so she had rearranged the details of her life in order to fade to the background. But then she has this encounter with Jesus, and in a moment, everything changes. So this is an encounter that by cultural standards of the day, it actually should never have happened. Jesus and this woman should never found each other alone at the well. First of all, there's a reason no one else was there. If you look there in verse 6, John tells us that it was about the sixth hour, and by that he means it's right around noon. It's the hottest part of the whole day. So the only source of water in these small ancient towns was from a well. So it required you to carry large pitchers out to the well to retrieve your daily supply of water for cooking and cleaning. It was a physically demanding task, one which made the most sense to do early in the morning or right before sunset, the coolest part of the day. Nobody would make the task more difficult 
by going to retrieve your water at the hottest part of the day. That is, unless you wanted to avoid running into anyone else. Which is exactly why this particular woman came to draw water right at noon. We see down in verse 18, we get a little glimpse into her background. She's been married five times. She's currently living with a man who's not her husband. And that's enough detail to know that in this culture at this time, she would have been labeled a sinner and an outcast. Divorce and promiscuity left a permanent mark of shame. People would have kept their distance when they saw her. They might have even jeered or thrown an insult her way as she passed by. So in truth, when she approached the well and saw Jesus sitting there, she was probably not too thrilled. She'd hoped to arrive and get her water undisturbed. And also by cultural standards, Jesus shouldn't have been at the well either. Verse 4 tells us that he had to pass through Samaria on the way from Judea to Galilee. But that comment deserves just a little bit of context. John tells us at the end of verse 9 that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jews considered Samaritans counterfeit followers of the one true God. There was a lot of bad blood between these two people groups. So while it's true that the most expedient way to get from Judea to Galilee would be through Samaria, the truth is that most Jewish people took a longer and more circuitous route around Samaria in order to avoid Samaritans. So many commentators note that the statement that Jesus had to pass through Samaria has much more to it than mere geography. The sentence, in fact, could be translated as Jesus absolutely had to go through Samaria, suggesting that this was, in fact, a prompting of the Holy Spirit that sent him there. And even though these two found themselves alone together at the well, it would have been expected for a Jewish man to ignore a Samaritan woman. When Jesus' disciples return in verse 27, they marvel at the fact that he's talking to a woman. So in spite of all the reasons that this encounter never should have happened, here she is, alone with Jesus at the well. And so the conversation begins. And as I was reading and rereading this passage this week, there was something that was so familiar about this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. First of all, there's a biblical familiarity here. This scene harkens back to several moments, moments especially early in the Old Testament, in which people experienced the Lord's presence and his provision at a well. You remember Abraham's servant, who the Lord led to a well to find Rebekah, Isaac's future wife. And Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel, at a well. And the one that feels particularly poignant in Genesis 16, after Hagar and her son Ishmael are rejected and sent away, Hagar has an encounter with an angel of the Lord at a well. It feels like this scene is set with that biblical familiarity in mind. But there's also something that's more personally familiar about this story. This is a story of a woman whose experience with pain 
and with sin had altered the way that she was living her life. And then, as she's just moving through life, just trying to get by, she has an encounter with Jesus, and it changes everything. Well, that's our story, isn't it? As Christians, we have a story of encountering Jesus. We each have a story of the transformation that he brought into our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you've had a moment, or perhaps moments, of meeting Jesus at the well. So I want to quickly outline what I'll call three stages of this encounter with Jesus that we see in the passage. So here they are. First, Jesus pursues you. Second, Jesus confronts you. And then third, Jesus frees you. So Jesus pursues you, Jesus confronts you, and Jesus frees you. Okay, so first, Jesus pursues you. This stage is captured, I think, pretty succinctly in the paragraph that begins on verse 7 in our passage. We've already noted that the initiation of the Holy Spirit has led Jesus to the well at this moment. But then notice in verse 7 that it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. As he asks her for a drink, and she's taken aback and replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus' pursuit of her was not hindered. It wasn't hindered by her reputation or her status or as we'll come to find out, not even her sin. It might have been the practice of most Jews at the time to have no dealings with Samaritans, but not Jesus. The fact that he initiates the conversation is shocking to her. And it is a shocking part of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus pursues you, regardless of your reputation, regardless of your status, or even your sin. Like our passage from fifth chapter of Romans reminded us this morning, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've all experienced Jesus initiating undeserved and unprejudiced pursuit of us. Thanks be to God. But of course, there's a flip side to that, isn't there? Perhaps there's many people in this room who would say that their reputation and their status in their community is actually looking pretty good. But in Jesus' eyes, that doesn't count for anything. Just like the woman at the well, he pursues you as a sinner who is in need of a Savior. So Jesus pursues you. Jesus pursues her. Okay, have you ever had this experience? Maybe it's late morning, you haven't showered, you still got your comfy pants on, and you realize you gotta head to the grocery store and just pick up one item really fast. And you just wanna get in and get out. And then you get to the grocery store, and then you see someone you know. And then they wanna talk. This woman has come to the well because she needs water. And she'd probably prefer just to get in and to get out. 
Then she runs into Jesus. So Jesus starts exactly where she's at, and he asks her for a drink. But after her initial shock, Jesus begins to press in. He begins to press in past her earthly need to the much deeper spiritual need that's under the surface. After her shock that she's even talking to him, he's even talking to her, Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this story is full of these phrases that have one meaning on the surface, but then they take on a much deeper significance in light of who this woman is talking to. Because she's talking to Jesus, the Messiah, as she will discover in verse 26. She's talking to the Savior of the world, as the people of the town will complain, will, will proclaim at the end of the passage in verse 42. So throughout this conversation, Jesus is pursuing the deeper spiritual need that she has. She may act like she doesn't need anybody, but she desperately needs someone who can save her from her pain and forgive her for her sin. She needs a savior. And more than today's supply of water, she's in need of living water. She's in need of water that will bring her back to life and will indeed bring her eternal life. So she may be trying to simply get on with her life, get on with her day, but Jesus wants to give her the gift of a new life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our encounter begins with Jesus pursuing us, with him offering us more than we ever even knew to ask for. Every Christian's testimony includes Jesus' pursuit of them. John Wesley, the great 18th century preacher, spoke of the moment as he heard a passage from the book of Romans being read in a service that he knew the Lord was pursuing him. He described it as his heart being strangely warmed. So what's your testimony of the moment or the moments where you knew Jesus was pursuing you? Where your heart was stirred or convicted or strangely warmed? Perhaps the reminder you need today is that Jesus continues to pursue you that he will always press through the surface of your defenses and your current circumstances in order to get to the deeper spiritual needs that lie under the surface. Jesus pursues you. And the second stage is that Jesus confronts you. We see this in the next paragraph. It starts there in verse 16. Up until this point, the Samaritan, Samaritan woman has frankly been not fully tracking with Jesus. She hasn't fully understood what he's talking about. But this is the hinge point of the conversation. It's when Jesus says, go, call your husband and come here. And a little taken aback, she says, I have no husband. So Jesus has cast his gaze upon this woman. He's seen her and he has pursued her. 
And now she's about to find out exactly how much he seems to know about her. You're right, he says, in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She's tried to reorder her life. She has tried to avoid confronting the pain and sin that's in her past. Jesus is willing to press in, and he's willing to confront her. But it's such an incredibly loving confrontation. I mean, we can only imagine that the details of her story are a mix of her own sinful choices and the sins that were done against her. Jesus does not want her to continue to live a hidden life, a life full of shame and pain. He doesn't want her to live a restless life. And so he confronts her because he wants to free her. And this is where the shift happens. All of a sudden, the conversation turns decidedly spiritual in verse 19. She realizes that this is not an ordinary person she's talking to, and this is not an ordinary conversation they're having. This is somebody who somehow seems to know everything about her, and yet he isn't backing away. He's actually pressing in. And this is what brings transformation in her life. Her testimony a few verses later is, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? So is there any way in which you have rearranged the details of your life? You've rearranged the relationships in your life in order to avoid confronting your sin or your pain? Is there any way you're living a hidden life out of the fear of what people would think if they really knew everything about you? Perhaps Jesus is coming to you with his loving confrontation because the truth is Jesus knows everything about you. He knows your entire story and he loves you. So maybe this Lent, Jesus would say to you, that wound or that sinful habit, it's time to let it go. It's time to talk to someone. It's time to confess it and receive forgiveness. Or perhaps it's time to extend forgiveness to someone else. Jesus confronts us because he loves us. He confronts us because he wants to set us free. There's this beautiful picture in verse 28 of the Samaritan woman's newfound freedom after her encounter with Jesus. Her only purpose in coming to the well in the heat of the day was to fill her jars with the water she needed and to avoid the rest of the people in her town. But then, all of a sudden, we see her leaving her water jars behind now because, of course, she's found something so much better in her encounter with Jesus. She's received a living water 
that's inside of her. She's received a new life. And now, instead of avoiding the people of her town, she's running towards them. Not only is she free, but she's compelled to bear testimony to others about her encounter with Jesus. And the transformation she's just experienced is so powerful that these people who have rejected her, now they listen to her, and they follow her to meet Jesus. And all of a sudden we have this mini revival breaking out in this small Samaritan town. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So I don't know all the details of your life. I don't know the pain or the sin that you're struggling with. But Jesus does. Jesus knows every single detail. Perhaps this morning, perhaps this morning's another moment for you to meet Jesus at the well. Perhaps you're in a season where you feel particularly protective or vulnerable. But know that Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. And out of that abundant love that he has, he will continue to pursue you. And he'll continue to confront you because he wants to set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.